Hey guys, it's Sunday Reading Day, and that means I'll be reading from a paranormal themed book. The title, The History and Haunting of Lizzie Borden by Rebecca F. Pittman. I'll be right back. Grab your popcorn and snacks, find a comfy spot, take a seat or lie down, and let me transport you to a place of fantasy, ghost stories, ancient legends, odd creatures, alien encounters, and other magical topics. You may even decide to join the conversation. From faraway lands to your own backyard, with a small dash of pixie dust, turn out the lights and open your minds. The journey is about to begin. Well, good evening, everybody. Hang on one second. Let me cue in TikTok people here. <laughs> well, good evening, everyone. Welcome to California Haunts Radio. Uh, my name is Charlotte. I'm going to be your host for the next hour. I'm also the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of Sacramento, California. We are 45 strong up and down the state, which means if you think you have a paranormal issue, we can get to you. It may take us a while, but we will get to you. I want to make a quick, uh, let me make a quick volume adjustment over here on TikTok, and, okay, just to let you guys know on TikTok, I can see you over there come up, but I cannot read it, I have old eyes, I'm doing this on my uh, iPhone 11, so, uh, yeah, I won't be able to answer you or anything, but please do leave comments, I'm, you know, I'm just getting this thing going, and we do this every Sunday, uh, we read from a paranormal theme book. And I'm hoping you guys hang on and hang around because if you're in, if you're into Lizzie Borden, this is the way to be. All right. Again, we are 45 strong up and down the state of California, which means if you have if you think you have a paranormal need, we can help you. Whether it's a business or home, we, we can do that. It might take us a while to get to you because California is a ginormous state, but we will get to you. In the case that it takes us an extra couple days to get to you, we do have psychics on staff who can phone you and talk with you about what might may or not be going on. And in most cases. They can settle things down until we can get out there. All right. Today is Sunday. Uh, for the people over on TikTok, like I said, I cannot read your comments. I see you coming up. That'd be, you know, thank you very much for coming up. Also, I do have uh, one request from everybody. For those of you watching on Facebook, and you have, if you haven't done so already, and you like what you see, please be sure to hit that follow button and get, show me some love. Hit you know, hit me some smileys and you know, hearts and all that, and comment if you want. Please feel free to comment because what that does is that puts us up higher in the Facebook FYP, which means we get to see more more people, you know, more people or more people get to see us rather. If you have anybody in the house or anything or any friends that you might want to share this with, feel free to do that. Same thing with YouTube. Um, if you haven't subscribed already, please hit that subscribe button because uh, you know we're always looking for more subscribers. I have a goal of a thousand subscribers by Christmas, which would be really fun to get. Okay, and again, comment in the comments and uh, leave us thumbs up and things like that. TikTok. See, I'm back over on TikTok. Like I said, I can't see what you're writing. I appreciate you all here. And if you're interested in hearing a nice book read and a good relaxing way to start your work week, this is the way to do it. All right. I'm going to put a warning out there right now. There may be things in this book that you object to. All right. And if you do object to it, just move on. You know, there's other places you can go, uh, you know, for entertainment. Don't turn me into the TikTok police or the Facebook police or the YouTube police or anything like that. Just, you know, just move on, okay? 
I do have a goal of 50 Lucy the Llamas. And the reason why I have that goal is because California Haunts Radio is, is, is technically a nonprofit. So whatever I make on those goals goes back into directly back into to funding the show itself, you know, to pay for the internet and things like that. So uh, that's what that's for. So if you feel, you know, if, if you like what you see today, not only hit that, that double tap that like button, but be sure to uh, send me a llama. I appreciate it. You don't have to, but I'm just saying it's a suggestion because it will help me stay on the air. All right. And, uh, you know, I'm just trying to build my myself up on, on all the on all the platforms, especially TikTok. And so my, my goal is 50 llamas today to help finances. Plus, I want to beat my likes from last week. Last week, I got 3,000 likes. If you guys could help me at TikTok over there and double tap, I would like to get 4,000 likes this week. If you could do that for me, that would be great. Okay, that being said, California Haunts Radio is a legitimate radio show. We broadcast Sunday through Friday, and we have different guests on every night talking about different paranormal topics. Sundays, we are, I always read from a uh, paranormal-themed book. But it, might, it might be a true story. It might be a fantasy. It just depends on what book I'm reading that week. This is part two of the history and haunting of Lizzie Borden. So if you know the story of Lizzie Borden, she was accused of killing her father and stepmother. But uh, she never got convicted of it. That's why I say accused. Uh, the author, Rebecca F. Pittman, goes way into detail about the book and about her research in this book. And so it's an interesting book read. I think you guys will like it. Okay, I'm going to read for about an hour today. And again, if, if you want to, if, if you guys want to donate, even over on Facebook and, and YouTube, that's fine. And, you know, I'm not going to push anybody to do anything, but it, it would help with my bills. It would help a great deal. Every little bit helps. And a Lucy the Llama would be great. Maybe a Rose you know, to help me out. So that, that would be great with you guys over on TikTok. Again, if you could do me a favor on TikTok, um, double tap that screen if you if if you're if you like what you hear because I'm going to be bringing a lot more content over you guys, and I I think you're going to like it. Okay, I think you're going to like the content. It's all paranormal all the time, so uh, yeah. All right. Um, that being said, uh, just a quick intro. I know this is going slow. I'm sorry. I'm just trying to get my my feet wet, as they say. Uh, we, we will be doing tarot card readings and live psychic readings over on TikTok coming up here. So. Just to make you guys FYI, and again, we're going to be reading about some uh, some delicate information here. If you you know if you're uncomfortable with it or anything like that, just just leave. This is a PG-13 rated R channel, and I just want to keep it that way. And I want to I want to stay on the air. I don't want to get I don't want to get banned or anything. So please TikTok, uh, please double tap that screen, double tap that screen. I'm trying to hit 4,000 likes today. All right. So here we go. Without further ado. The uh, History and Haunting of Lizzie Borden by Rebecca F. Pittman. I will read for about an hour, and then we'll call it a night. All right, so here we go. Let me grab my tablet, my antiquated tablet. We're in Chapter 3 right now, and uh, George Petty writes, this is where the trouble begins. This is the starting point. The hatred towards Abby Borden had been growing since Lizzie's return from the Grand Tour. Emma saw the difference in her younger sister within a few short days after Lizzie unpacked her trunk, trunks and came down from, from the exhilaration of telling her travel stories and showing off her postcards and souvenirs. She spent hours pasting each picture postcard of the many wonders she'd seen into an album, carefully writing beneath each card her memories of that location. After seeing her steamer truck resting in the hallway, Andrew, it was said, bounded up the steps to greet his daughter the morning following her return. That he loved his daughters was evident to many, if not to them. 
It was said. One friend looked at Andrew's smiling face as he went about his daily routine and commented, I can guess by that huge smile that someone is back. But the afterglow from the dizzying whirlwind of travel to so many cultural places soon faded. Lizzie was unhappier than ever. She complained constantly about her cramped little room and the ugly house she had come home to. There wasn't even room to display the many wonderful treasures she had carefully selected from each European city. Emma did what she always did. She took a backseat to baby Lizzie's wishes and in an effort to head off, the, head off a maelstrom, offered to change bedrooms with her, as Emma's was twice as large. While the new sleeping arrangement may have mollified Lizzie for a time, it quickly wore off. It is unknown at what point Lizzie learned of the plan to turn the upper farm at Swansea into a major business operation. Andrew owned two farms in Swansea, Massachusetts, the upper and lower farms. He had accumulated the property through acquisitions over the years and stubbornly held on to the water rights of that area. The upper farm was a huge acreage for cattle, other livestock, and crops. The lower farm was where the family summered and where Lizzie had learned to fish. Both farms were only minutes from Warren, Rhode Island, and the home of Uncle Charles M. Morse. It is possible that Andrew went to visit his brother-in-law, John Morse, in Hastings, Iowa, while Lizzie was away for 18 weeks on the Grand Tour in 1890. Plans for a new business concerning the upper farm may have begun at the time John did, at the time. John did testify in 1893 that Andrew came to see him some years earlier. John Vinicum Morse was the brother of Andrew's first wife, Sarah, who died when Lizzie was only two. He was a bachelor who had been born and raised in Fall River, but had headed west to the frontier to try his hand at farming and horses. Using his Yankee thrift and good business head, he soon amassed a sizable bankroll. John visited the Bournes often, staying a year and a half in 1879. He tended to bounce around from relative to relative when traveling. Andrew found in him a friend and shrewd business confidant. Both men were loners, seldom letting others close until their motives and loyalty have been proven. Close, I'm sorry. Uh, they pinched pennies, distanced themselves from frivolous adornment, and saw real estate holdings and, ex and expansive businesses as the golden goose. John rented his Iowa farm and moved to Warren, Rhode Island, a mere eight miles from Swansea in 1890. That same year, Lizzie was traveling. He stayed with his uncle Charles Morris, his wife Mary, and their two spinster daughters, Elizabeth, 52, and Henrietta, 47. Both Charles and Mary were getting on in years. In 1890, Charles was 80, and Mary was 78. A year later, John rented his Iowa farm for an additional year and moved to South Dartmouth, Massachusetts, to join his friend William A. Davis, who was operating a horse trading and butcher business. The 1880 federal census shows William A. Davis, 28, his wife Sophia S. Wilcox Davis, 26, Isaac C. Davis, 2, and Alice P. Davis, 5. Sophia's father is also living with them by 1892. William is listed as a meat peddler. John told friends around this time that he had brought 80 Mustang horses with him from Iowa. For a time, they were pastured at Westport, Massachusetts, where some itinerant horse traders had set up camp. The local authorities began investigating the setup two days before the Borden murders. John suddenly moved the horses to Fairhaven, Massachusetts, possibly to his relative's farm. In Fairhaven lived another Charles Morris, Charles L. Morris, who was married to Marinda Mary C. Morris, 
a second cousin. They had three young children, Betsy 12, Charles M. Morris 4, and Emma L. Morris 2. Yet another Mary Morris, Mary L. Morris, who was widowed after her husband Joseph died, was cited as living in Fall River in the 1900 federal census at the age of 76. This is the Aunt Morris Emma mentions during the trial. The tradition of naming generations the same name has caused more than one genealysis to reach for the aspirin bottle. Oh, yes, and I do have permission from the author and the publisher to read the book. The storm within the walls of 92 2nd Street had truly begun in 1887 when Andrew stepped in to help Abby's relative, Sarah Gray Whitehead. Okay, Abby's relative. Sarah Gray Whitehead was Ab Abby Dufresne. Gray Ford's half-sister, and a good 32 years younger. When Sarah and Abby's father, Oliver Gray, died, the 4th Street house where Sarah was living was divided four ways, one-fourth to Mrs. Gray, the widow, one-fourth to Mrs. Priscilla Fish, Gray's daughter, one-fourth to Sarah Gray, Whitehead, and one-fourth to Abby. Abby gave her one-fourth to her sister, Sarah. At Abby's urging, in 1887, five years before the murders, Andrew bought the Widow Gray's share and gave it to Sarah. Sarah was struggling, and her husband wasn't doing right by her, according to Abby. This generous gift would give her beloved half-sister security and a home of her own. For the penurious Andrew J. Borden, this strange largesse made his two daughters sit up and take notice. Lizzie, never one to sit quietly, by confronted him. Her inquest testimony summed it up when attorney Hosea Knowlton asked her about a response to the gift. We thought what he did for her, Abby, he should do for his own, Lizzie said hauntingly. And indeed, the sisters were given their grandfather's house on Ferry Street, where they had been born. It was worth a good deal more money than the 4th Street house. They owned it outright, but soon found that, that the rent payments they received from tenants there were minimal, and the house was in constant need of repairs. On July 18, 1892, only two weeks before the murders, they suddenly sold the deed for the house back to their father for $5,000, 2000 more than what it was valued when he gave it to them. That the sisters opted for cash so soon before his death gives one pause. Did one or both fear that should their father die, they would be stuck with a house that was proving to be a money pit and prefer ready cash instead? Would extra money in their banks prove there was no motive on their behalf to kill their wealthy father. A burglary in broad daylight. One of the many people allowed to view the dead bodies of Andrew and Abby Borden on the day of their murders was George Petty of number 98 Second Street. He had lived at 92 before the Bordens moved in, 20 years prior to their death. He was interviewed by Officer Philip Harrington concerning what he saw the day of the murders. Quote, Went upstairs, got down on my knees to examine Mrs. Borden's head. At once I saw she had been dead some time, and told the doctor, Boren, she must have been dead an hour. I further said, this is where the trouble began. This is where the starting point was. No truer words were spoken concerning the mysterious circumstances of that day. Abby was indeed where the trouble began. On June 24, 1891, two important events happened. John Morris was moving to South Dartmouth to join the William A. Davis family's meat business, and the Borden's house was robbed. It was a unique burglary, happening in broad daylight, on one of the busiest business streets in the city. It happened while Andrew and Abby were summering at the Swansea farm. 
Captain Dennis Desmond, Jr. of the Fall River Police Department, responded to a summons made by Andrew Gordon. Upon Desmond's arrival, he said, in a small room on the north side of the house, I found Mr. Borden's desk. It had been broken open. Andrew told Desmond, $80 in money and $25 to $30 in gold, and a large number of horse car tickets had been taken. The tickets bore the name of Frank W. Brightman. They were a gift to Andrew from a business associate. Due to the name written on them, the tickets were seen as a way to apprehend the burglar if and when they were used. An idea Lizzie Borden later ridiculed. Abby was interviewed and stated that her gold watch and chain, ladies' chain, with slide and tassel attached, some other small trinkets of jewelry, and a red Russian leather pocketbook containing a lock of her hair, a lock of hair had been taken. She said, I prize that watch very much, and I wish and hope that you can get it, but I have a feeling that you never will. Her husband, Andrew, echoed her sentiments when he told Captain Desmond three times within two weeks after the robbery. I'm afraid the police will not be able to find the real thief. Perhaps it was obvious to Andrew and Abby that the burglary could have only been committed by someone within the heavily locked house, and who knew just where to go find the room where the Borden's valuables were kept. An intruder from the outside would need to know when the coast was clear, as Emma, Lizzie, and Bridget were all home that day. He would have to find the rare time when the rear door wasn't hooked, the front door's three locks unlatched, enter, traverse that confusing layout of rooms, get past more locked doors, break open a desk without alerting anyone to his presence, grab the good stuff, and exit again without passing any of the inmates. Lizzie was ready with an answer to at least one of the obstacles. She dramatically showed the police officers an open door in the cellar and pointed out an old six or eight penny nail, which she found in the keyhole of a door leading to a bedroom on the east side of the house. The description of the door leading to a bedroom on the east side of the house matches the location of the door to Andrew and Abby's bedroom. It would appear that door was in the habit of being locked before the burglary of 1891, and a burglar used the unlikely nail as a tool of entrance. As you will see, Lizzie anchors her lies with objects, as though leaving a trail of breadcrumbs for others to detect her cleverness. No material object goes without a hint to her deception. Attorney Knowlton, during the inquest, questioned of Lizzie. All the reason you supposed there there were there were sinkers there in the barn was your father had told you there was lead in the barn. Lizzie, yes, lead. And one day I wanted some old nails. He said there were some in the barn. This has bold print by the author. Okay, if you like what you're hearing, please double tap that screen. TikTok, double tap that screen. Give me some thumbs up on Facebook and YouTube. If you like what you hear, if you like what you hear, let me flip in, look at some comments on Facebook real quick. Facebook, I can see. <laughs> Rest of you, I can't see. All right, we continue. The streetcars were washed for several weeks after the burglary. Finally, a breakthrough occurred when the tickets were traced to some person. Oddly, Andrew told the police to drop the case. Not so oddly, it was later stated that Officer Desmond reported he had told Andrew that the stolen tickets had been traced to his youngest daughter after people using the horse car said the tickets had been given to them by Lizzie Borden. The stolen watch, so highly prized by Abby, was quite probably the one Andrew bought her on August 5, 1871. It was a gold HTG Lady Elgin in a hunting case and priced at $75. In 2015, 
$75 is the equivalent of $1,470, a prestigious amount for someone with Andrew's reticence for spending on things that weren't absolutely essential. That gift did not fall on a birthday anniversary or another special occasion. That gives it even more importance. It was a gift from the heart, not from an obligatory observation of an event. Abby's watch, along with other items, was never recovered. That Andrew suspected Lizzie was possibly the reason that from the day of the burglary forward, he laid the key to his bedroom in plain sight on the left-hand corner of the sitting room mantel. Without uttering a word, the key notified the thief that Andrew trusted the housemaid, and if stealing from your father is that important to you, then here, here's the key. No rusty nail necessary. That key sat there, day in and day out, taunting Lizzie with her father's distrust, until the day he was found murdered only a few feet from the mantel where it sat. The burglary of Abby's watch is significant. During the trial testimony, Emma reported that Andrew wore on his little finger the only article of jewelry with which he adorned himself. He carried a pocket watch but wore no other rings. The ring was a small gold band Lizzie had given to him 10 to 15 years before the murders, according to Emma. That would make Lizzie around 17 to 22 years old at the time. She gave it to him. We know she did not graduate from high school, and the presentation of school rings was not yet popular. Was the small gold ring something that had belonged to her late mother Sarah? Was it Lizzie's way of reminding her father where his loyalty should lie? Or, more ominously, was it her way of tying him to her due to her jealousy and hatred of Abby? Perhaps Abby's watch was the first outward sign of affection that the usually non-demonstrative and remote man showed to his wife. For Lizzie, it was a sign of betrayal and abandonment. No matter how erroneous her feelings were, the watch goes missing, but Lizzie's gift still glitters from her father's little finger. During Lizzie's inquest testimony, Attorney Knowlton asked her, Were your father and mother happily united? Witness pauses a little bit before answering. Lizzie, why, I don't know, but that they were. Knowlton, why do you hesitate? Lizzie, because I don't know, but that they were, and I am telling the truth as nearly as I know it. Lizzie's hesitation may have been caused by a flashback of Andrew's gift of the watch to Abby. It was obvious Lizzie had not really thought of her father and stepmother as a living husband and wife. Other than that, unexpected romantic gesture on her father's part. The two things of obvious sentiment value, sentimental value to Abby were taken, it says, quite a bit. I'm sorry, the two things of obvious sentimental value to Abby were taken, says quite a bit as to the perpetrator's mission. A small leather pocketbook with a lock of hair could hardly seem tempting. The hair was doubtless from someone Abby loved dearly. Andrew's gift of a deed to the house on 4th Street in 1887 further cemented Lizzie's growing fear that this woman had not only taken over her mother's role, but maybe close to replacing his love for his daughters as well. It was at that time of the 4th Street transfer that Lizzie stopped calling Abby mother. When Attorney Knowlton asked her during her inquest testimony, You did not regard her as your mother? Lizzie, not exactly, no. Although she came there when I was very young. Knowlton, Were your relations toward her that of mother and daughter? Lizzie, in some ways it was, and in some, it was not. 
Knowlton. In what ways was it? Lizzie, I declined to answer. The Borden House burglary in June of 1891 was the beginning of a plethora of strange happenings at 92 Second Street. That winter, Lizzie began reporting seeing a strange man running around the house in the shadows. Chapter 4 Something Wicked This Way Comes The spring and summer months of 1892, leading up to the murders of Andrew and Abby Borden, were fraught with strange occurrences and disclosures. The threatening clouds hanging over the house at 92 Second Street were as prevalent as the industrial smoke from the mill skirting Fall River. The pressure was building, and it was apparent to those in the Borden's inner circle something was about to blow. In March of that year, Mrs. Hannah Gifford measured Lizzie for an outer garment. She had been creating capes, cloaks, and sacks for the Borden ladies for seven or eight years. During the trial in June of 1893, Mrs. Gifford was asked to state a conversation between herself and Lizzie Borden that occurred in March of 1892 while she was working on a sack for Lizzie. Parentheses, a sack is a short, loose-fitting coat for women and children. Kind of makes me think of what Grogu wears, right? Knowlton, look at this. I have, like, red on my cheeks. What is up with that? Knowlton, now Mrs. Gifford. Knowlton, now Mrs. Gifford. Will you state the talk? What you said and what she said? Gifford, I was speaking to her of a garment I made for Mrs. Borden, and instead of saying, Mrs. Borden, I said mother. And she says, don't say that to me, for she is a mean, good-for-nothing thing. I said, oh, Lizzie, you don't mean that. And she said, yes, I don't have much to do with her. I stay in my room most of the time. And I said, you come down to your meals, don't you? And she said, yes, but we don't eat with them if we can help it. And that was all that was said. In April 1892, only four months before the murders, someone broke into the barn at the Borden residence. Bridget, the housekeeper, testified it was at night. That something was taken was addressed during her preliminary hearing testimony a few weeks after the murder. Mr. Adams, for the defense, within a few months of the murders, the barn was broken into, and something was taken or tried to be taken out of that. So far as you know, Bridget, yes, sir, Adams. Has the barn been broken into more than once? It has been twice, has it not? Bridget, I don't remember. Adams, you only remember once? Bridget, yes, sir. Lizzie told Miss Alice Russell about the barn break-ins on the night before the murders. Alice said it was just teenage boys up to mischief trying to steal the pigeons. What is telling about the above testimony with Bridget is the cagey way the question to her from Mr. Adams is presented. Mr. Adams, Something was taken, or tried to be taken out of that, so far as you know. Nine pages of, Bridget, of, of Bridget's preliminary hearing testimony are missing from the time of the prosecutor. Mr. Knowlton is questioning her. Her entire inquest testimony has been missing since the Superior Court trial in June of 1893. The testimony she gives Mr. Adams during cross-examination concerning the barn break-in corresponds to the questions from the missing nine pages of the preliminary hearing, that were under direct examination. If you look at the way the question to her by Mr. Adams is phrased, you can infer that when the question was first asked of her in the missing pages, under direct examination by Malton, Knowlton, <laughs> it was probably objected to. If the something taken from the barn had been pigeons, then why not say pigeons? Why the cloak and dagger? 
But if the subject had a more ominous meaning, such as a hatchet, that is something that would be objected to. The break-in was in April, and the defense would have objected to any object which could be construed as related to the murders by saying it was too removed in time for the murders, an excuse they had used before to defuse the ticking bombs. Bridget's answer of yes, sir, when asked if something was taken, shows she had knowledge of that, that that a burglary had occurred. Let's see just what might have happened. Andrew was a shrewd businessman who never missed an opportunity to make a buck. He sold vinegar and other sundries from his cellar and was known to peddle eggs from his farm on the downtown street, something which caused Lizzie no end of embarrassment. His father and Abby's father had both been peddlers, and he saw no shame in it. The breeding and raising of pigeons as a business was a popular one in the 1800s. Young pigeons were called squab. They were considered a delicacy and were in demand both at restaurants and at meat markets. Andrew, after ridding himself of his only horse that year before, took the barn loft and turned the east end of it above a window into a pigeon coop. An article from Mother Earth News says the following. A point to remember is that it is just about as easy to raise twice the number of squab you will want for your family as it is to raise barely enough. You can then easily sell the surplus to cover all your costs. First-class hotels and restaurants are always in the market for squabs. Or you can swap the surplus with neighbors for things they raise, and you don't. The timing of when young pigeons were considered squabs is important to note. The USDA's definition for squab is a young pigeon that is marked just before it is ready to leave the nest, usually from 25 to 28 days of age, when it weighs from 12 to 24 ounces. Most people raising squab made sure there were several males and females in one coop to keep the eggs coming at different intervals, thus supplying the breeder with meat every 25 to 28 days or every month. In April, a break-in at the barn occurred. That is also the month Andrew Borden found it necessary to buy a new hatchet, a large one with a five-inch blade and claw head at the back. He took it over to his farm in Swansea and handed it to Mr. Frank Eddy, the foreman there, for, six, for 16 years to have it sharpened. Mr. Reddy, on August 11th, 19, 1882, during the police investigation in the early days after the murder, reported to Detective George F. Seaver, I have seen axes and hatchets at Mr. Borden's. The large hatchet was comparatively new. When it was brought, it was brought over here and ground sharp. After being ground, Mr. Borden was here, and it was carried out and put on a wall by the gate for him to carry home. When he went away, he said, I won't take the hatchet. You'll be coming over in a day or two, and you can bring it over, which I did. The fact that Andrew told the farmer to bring it when he came may in intimate that this way Lizzie couldn't steal it again. He left it with Mr. Eddie. Bridget testified that she hadn't seen Lizzie go to the barn since the horse was taken away that year before. Now, Lizzie did visit the barn when the horse was in residence is another testimony to her love of animals that followed her throughout her lifetime. She may have seen the removal of the horse as a thoughtless gesture from a father she was beginning to see as the enemy. When the pigeon coop was installed, Andrew, a man nearing 70, may have given her the job of climbing the steep barn steps to the loft to feed and care for the birds, and may have been a way to mollify her after getting rid of the horse. Parentheses, horse cars ran near 2nd Street during this time, and electric streetcars had just begun to make an appearance in Fall River. Andrew probably felt the expense of harboring the horse unnecessary.
It is possible the horse was removed to the Swansea farm. And end of parentheses. If Lizzie had begun tenderly caring for the horses or for the birds, sorry, she may have been horrified to find them beheaded by a hatchet sometime in spring. When Andrew explained the birds were a business, not pets, she would have realized that the beheading would be happening every time the helpless things were of age, about once a month. Lizzie may have stolen the hatchet Andrew was using in the barn, and for good measure, hidden the others that were in the cellar. Alfred Johnson, the young Swede who was in charge of the lower farm at Swansea, told Detective Seaver, August 11, 1892, that he has worked for Mr. Borden for nine years, had done his work at the house, cutting wood and cleaning up the yard, but not busy at the farm. I think the last two times I cut wood was early in spring, and again just before planting. Mr. Borden had two axes, a single hatchet, and a shop or bench hatchet. The bench hatchet has never been used much since it was sharpened. I grounded over here to the I, I grounded over here to the farm in early spring. The hatchets and axes were always kept in one place, in a box in the wood room at the left of the furnace. Never found them in any other place and always put them back after using them, as Mr. Borden was particular about having one place for old tools. When I have been working for Mr. Borden, I have stayed there. It is unclear when Andrew first realized the hatchet was missing. He kept the barn locked at night and had the key with him on his extensive key ring. While obviously knowing the barn had been broken into in April, he may not have realized the hatchet was missing until it came time again to dispatch the birds, which would have been sometime in May. If Alfred arrived to do some work at the house just before planting, which was probably May in Massachusetts, he may have gone to the cellar for a hatchet to chop wood and found the box where they were kept empty. He would have asked Bridget if she knew where they were, and after looking, she perhaps mentioned it to Miss Emma. In Emma's inquest testimony, a few days after the murder, she was asked by Attorney Knowlton concerning the cellar. Knowlton. A short-handed hatchet was found there later after the murder. Do you know anything about that? Emma. No, sir. Knowlton. Do you know whether your father kept such an instrument? Emma. I know the farmer used to come over and cut up wood. I suppose he has something to do with it. Knowlton, whether any such instrument had been previously kept there, you don't know? Emma, no, sir. I never saw one, but there must have been one. Knowlton, assume there were three found. Emma, yes, sir. I think I have seen a hatchet down there in the wood room. I am quite sure I have. Knowlton, when do you think you saw whatever you did see there? Emma, I should say it might have been several months before the August murders that I had been in the wood room for anything. Knowlton, you don't know of anything being done with an axe or a hatchet that would cause blood to come in to come on it, do you? Emma, not unless Father killed pigeons with them. I don't know whether he did or not. Knowlton, you did not see him kill the pigeons? Emma, no, sir. Emma tries to dodge the subject of hatches, only to finally admit she had been to the wood room in the cellar several months before August. That tallies nicely with Alfred being there in May to chop wood. It is hard to believe Emma would need anything in the dark and dirty wood room. She may indeed have been looking for the missing hatchets for Alfred Johnson's use. Andrew Borden could be an obtruse man when it came to relationships. While he had a mind for business, dealing with women's emotions and drama was so outside his wheelhouse. He may as well have come from Pluto. Yet here he was, living in an old female home, where hormones and spells swirl like the falls for which the city was named, 
Rather than confront Lizzie about the missing bar and hatchet, he handled it in the same way he had left in the same way he had left in the same way he had left a silent message with the key in the same way he had left a silent message with the key on, on the sitting room mantle. He fought back, not with words but with actions. Knowlton, did you have any occasion to use the axe or hatchet? Lizzie. No, sir. Knowlton. Did you know where they were? Lizzie. I knew there was an old axe down cellar. That's all I know. The last time I saw it, it was stuck in an old shopping block. Knowlton. When was the last time you knew of it? Lizzie. When our farmer came to chop wood. Knowlton. When was that? I think a year ago last winter. I think there was so much wood on the on hand he did not come last winter. Knowlton. Did you know of anything that would occasion the use of an axe or hatchet? Lizzie. No, sir. Knowlton. Assume they had blood on them. Can you give any occasion for there being blood on them? Lizzie. No, sir. Knowlton. Can you tell of any killing of any of an animal or any other operation that would lead to blood on them? Lizzie. No, sir. He killed some pigeons in the barn last May or June. Knowlton. What with? I don't know. But I thought I thought he wrung their necks. Knowlton. What made you think so? Lizzie. I think he said so. Knowlton. Did anything else make you think so? Lizzie. All but three of four had their heads on. That is what made me think so. Knowlton. Did all of them come into the house? Lizzie. I think so. Knowlton. Those that came into the house were headless? Lizzie. Two or three had them on. Knowlton. Were any other heads off? Lizzie. Yes, sir. Knowlton. Cut off or twisted off? Lizzie. I don't know which. Knowlton. How did they look? Lizzie. I don't know. Their heads were gone is all. Knowlton. Did you tell anybody they looked as though they were twisted off? Lizzie. I don't remember whether I did or not. The skin, I think, was very tender. I said, why are their heads off? I think I remember telling somebody that he said they, they twisted off. Knowlton. Did it look as if they were cut off? Lizzie. I don't know. I didn't look at that particularly. In the same dysfunctional way, Andrew left a small key on the mantel. The, the small key on the mantel was talking. His twisting off the heads of the birds when his hatchet was taken shows the fiery board and trait and iron will. He knows Lizzie was responsible for the theft of Abby's things the year before. It may have been at that time he installed a sliding bolt between the shared door to his bedroom and Lizzie's. Her erratic behavior had taken a toll. He would not be victimized by his daughter. He would fight back. That Lizzie was made of the same unyielding will was Andrew's undoing. A blue Bedford cord and pink wrapper. In May, three months before the murders, a dressmaker made her appearance on the scene, one whose testimony concerning an important dress she made for Lizzie would be of great interest. Mr. Jennings, Lizzie's attorney during the Superior Court trial in June of 1893, one year after the murders, What is your name? Raymond. Mary A. Raymond. Jennings, what is your business? Raymond, dressmaker. Jennings, where do you live? 31 Franklin Avenue. Jennings, Ball River. Raymond, yes, sir. Jennings, have you done dressmaking for Miss Lizzie Borden for a number of years? Raymond, yes, sir. Jennings, how many? Raymond, 10 at the house, 10 at my home. Jennings, what portion of that time, if any, have you also done dressmaking for Miss Borden and Miss Emma? Raymond, I worked for Mrs. Borden, not for Miss Emma, for Mrs. Borden during that time. Jennings, where did you do the work for Mrs. Borden? 
Raymond, in the same room I did Miss Lizzie's. Jennings, did you make any dresses for Miss Lizzie last spring? Raymond, I did. Jennings, do you remember at that time making a Bedford Court dress? Raymond, yes, sir. Jennings, before I pass to that, I will ask you what time you went there. Raymond, in May. Jennings, what time in May? Raymond, the first week in May. I was there three weeks. Jennings, and do you remember in what order the dresses were made? As to, as to when this Bedford Court dress was made? Raymond, I made that the first one. Jennings, why? Raymond, well, she needed it. Needed it to wear and had it made first. Jennings, how long did it take to make? Raymond, I couldn't tell the exact time, but I should think three days. Parentheses, Emma, who helped the sewing, said it took two days. Jennings, can you describe the dress? Raymond, it was light blue with dark with a dark figure. Jennings, I have allergies, guys, I'm sorry. How light a blue? Raymond, well, quite a light blue. Jennings, what they call a baby blue? Raymond, no, I think not. Not as light as a baby blue. Jennings, do you remember what the figure was upon what figure what the figure was upon it? Raymond, I can't remember the shape of the figure. It was a dark figure. Jennings, in what manner was it made? Raymond, it was made a blouse waist and a full skirt, straight width. Jennings, how was it to the sleeves? Raymond, the sleeves were full sleeves, large sleeves. Jennings, how was it as to the length? Raymond, longer than she usually had them. Jennings, how did the length compare with those of her other dresses made for her at that time? Excuse me. Raymond, well, I should certainly say it was a half finger longer, two inches longer. Jennings, did you make a pink wrapper for her this time? Raymond, I made a pink striped wrapper. Jennings, was this dress longer or shorter than that? Raymond, I should think longer. Jennings, now what was the material? Hang on a second. Okay. All right. Now, what was the material which the Bedford cord was made? Raymond, why, it was a Bedford cord. That was the name of the material. It was cotton, a cheap cotton dress, trimmed with a ruffle around the bottom. Jennings, a ruffle of what? Raymond, of the same. Keep in parentheses, keep in mind the order of the dresses were made. It may have been made for another reason than simply needing something new to wear. In the parentheses. During the Superior Court trial in June of 1893, Officer Phil Harrington was asked to describe the dress Lizzie had on when he interviewed her in her room the afternoon of the murders. Harrington, it was a house wrap, a striped house wrap, with a pink and light stripe alternating. The pink, the most prominent color. On the light ground stripe, on the light ground stripe was a diamond figure formed by narrow stripes, some of which ran diagonally or biased to the stripe and other parallel with it. The sides were tailor fitting or fitted to the form. The front form, the front form, the waist to the neck was loose and in folds. The collar was standing, plated on the sides and closely sheared in front. On either side, directly over the hips, was caught a narrow bright red ribbon, perhaps three-fourths of an inch or an inch in width. This was brought around in front, tied in a bow, and allowed to drop, with the ends hanging a little below the bow. The bow. It was cut in a semi-trainer belt skirt, which the ladies were wearing that season. Officer Harrington's description 
blossom twitters from the female spectators in the courtroom, and some sarcasm from the prosecution team as to his overknowledge of these fashions. The Boston Record had this summation of Harrington's testimony. Quote, If Officer Phil Harrington of the Fall River Police ever loses his job, he ought to have no difficulty in getting a situation in a, in a dressmaking store or as a reporter on the Society Journal. His description of the dress that Lizzie Borden wore the day of the murder was so elaborate and detailed as to arouse the suspicion that it was carefully prepared beforehand. It is a pity, in the interest of justice, that he and his brother officers of the Fall River Police were not so observant of the other details of that fatal warning as he was of Lizzie Borden's apparel. His knowledge of the details of a woman's costume is painfully accurate, even for a policeman. The description of the dress Lizzie wore that morning of the murders before she changed in the pink wrapper at noon that day did not fare well in the detail department. Witnesses' accounts of what she wore were vague, and in some cases non-existent. During Lizzie's inquest testimony on August 9, 1892, only five days after the murders, she was asked by Attorney Hosea Knowlton, the district attorney, what did you wear the day of the murders? Lizzie. I had on a navy blue, sort of bengaling silk skirt with a navy blue blouse. In the afternoon, they thought I had better change. I put on a pink wrapper. Note the name of the person who told her to change is not mentioned. It is an ambiguous they. Alice Russell testified that she did not tell Lizzie to change and did not hear anyone else instruct her to do so. Dr. Seabury Bowen testified he suggested Lizzie go upstairs after the crowd out front was becoming overwhelming. Their shouts and conversation were, no doubt, coming in through the dining room windows. Even if Bridget had left them closed after washing them a little over an hour earlier, the chaos would have been heard from within the house. It is interesting to note that only two people during the trial testimony agreed with Lizzie on the color of the dress she wore that morning. All right, if you like what you hear, double tap that screen, double tap that screen. I'm trying to shoot for 4,000 likes. So help me out, TikTok, help me out. Same thing over there on Facebook and everywhere else. Yeah, show me some love. Please show me some love. Dr. Lizzie Borden stated Lizzie's dress. I mean, Dr. Lizzie Bowen. Dr. Bowen stated Lizzie's dress that morning was sort of drab, not much color to attract any attention, a sort of morning calico. A common dress that I did not notice specifically, I should call it dark blue. Mrs. Phoebe Bowen, his wife, quote, dark blue with a, with a blouse waist, a white spray design on it, a round figure of flower, end quote. The other witnesses described the color differently. Bridget Sullivan, the maid, quote, it was a blue dress with a sprig on it, light blue. It, the sprig, was darker blue, I think, than the under part was. In previous testimonies, Bridget said she did not notice what dress Lizzie wore that morning. Yet she recalled what she was wearing the day before the murders, Wednesday, vividly. Light blue wrapper on her shirt, misspelled, probably skirt, and basque. Basque was a blouse waist. Officer Packard Doherty, quote, I thought she had a light blue dress with bosom in the waist or something like a bosom. I thought there was a small figure on the dress. A little spot-like, end quote. Mrs. Churchill recalled a light, quote, light blue and white ground with a darker figure, the shape of a diamond, box, pleat, and loose in the front. 
Alice Russell, in her usual flustered dialogue, could recall nothing about the dress, even though Lizzie laid with her head on Alice's shoulder during the morning of the murders. was found and administered to throughout the early hours. Her hands rubbed, forehead bathed, and helped to sit down. Alice did remember the bottom of Lizzie's blouse waist was open, as she tried to unhook it further to allow Lizzie to breathe. Lizzie stopped her, saying, I'm not faint. Only the Bowens collaborate Lizzie's description of a dark blue dress. Lizzie described it as navy blue. She also said it was a bangling silk, which is rib cotton, which is a rib cotton fabric, threaded with silk to give it a sheen. It differs from calico or cheap cotton that has no ribbing. Bangling fabric is a thick grain taffeta. It is a durable plain weave fabric characterized by widthwise cords formed by using fine warp yards and coarse whiff yards. Bengaling was, was, was first made of silk and bengal, India. Calico is an unbleached cotton, often showing small husks. It was a cheap material and popular in the 1800s due to its ease in receiving dyes and patterns. That Bowen aided Lizzie and cared about her was obvious. He and his wife had known her and the family for 20 years, both as neighbors and as a family physician. He even accompanied Lizzie to the Catholic Central Congregation Church where, when her parents were summering at Swanson, although he was himself Baptist. It resulted in the Fall River Hens having a cluck fest. Perhaps Dr. Bowen was merely mimicking what his wife had told him of Lizzie's dress within the seclusion of her own walls. It would not be the first time he took credit for something she had witnessed. The fact that Bridget described her own dress that fateful morning as a dark, indigo blue calico skirt and blouse with a white cloverleaf background is interesting. Perhaps Phoebe Bowen confused Bridget's dress as Lizzie's during the excitement. Later that day, Bridget changed to a light blue gingham dress with two white borders running around the bottom portion of the skirt. The reason Lizzie was in a hurry to change out of the dress she was wearing that morning will become clear later. The innocent view is a wrapper. The innocent view is a wrapper was much less restricting, something the Victorian female looked for in everyday house dresses and tea gowns. The, ubig the, the, the I can't say ubiquitous corset they were forced to wear was difficult enough without being pinned in by more hooks and unyielding fabrics. A paint-stained Bedford cord dress. If you like what you hear, please double-tap that screen, double-tap that screen. Same thing with you guys. Show me some love. Show me some love. Just trying to build up my numbers. Lizzie's father had announced he would be having the house painted in May. With a Lizzie offered to choose the color in an uncharacteristic move on her behalf, or Andrew asked for assistance in an effort to lessen the tension that had accumulated inside the house between Lizzie, Abby, and himself, we don't know. As a transparent olive branch, in an obvious effort to placate her, Lizzie would still have seen the offer as perfect timing. Lizzie was a voracious reader. One of her excursions between the pages had trumpeted the death caused by a dye called emerald green. This popular color of the 1800s was derived from mixing verdigris in vinegar and warm water. Arsenic was then added to achieve the green color. When reacting with the copper particles, it achieved a brilliance unlike previous greens, replacing the popular shields and Paris green pigment. At the peak of its popularity, people began dying. It was found 
the flocked emerald green wallpaper was releasing the arsenic in the air. Women wearing silk ball, silk ball gowns created by the green dye were absorbing the poison into their skin. Even fake flowers dyed with Paris green were infecting households. It made headlines, and Lizzie took notice. Lizzie accepted the offer to choose the color or volunteered to do so and moved forward to oversee the painting of the house she detested. On May 9, 1892, only three months before the murders, John Bruard arrived at the Borden home to begin preparing the paint color Lizzie had chosen. Drab. Drab was the name of a green paint of medium hue found on a palette of Victorian color choices. John Bruard testified during the Superior Court trial concerning his interaction with Lizzie Borden during the time he was hired to paint the Borden residence at 92 2nd Street. Jennings. Can you tell when you took the paint up there, Mr. Gruard? Mr. Gruard, the 9th of May. Jennings. Did you see Miss Lizzie Borden there on or about that time? Gruard. Not that day. The next morning early, in the backyard near the barn. Jennings. Where was your paint? Gruard. In the barn. Jennings. What was it in? Ruard, tubs, pots, etc. Jennings, now won't you tell what was done by you and she at that time in regard to paint? Ruard, the color was not satisfactory that we had mixed in the tub, and so I made the color to suit, to suit her. Jennings, was she about the premises? Ruard, oh yes, she was. And I mixed the colors to get a satisfactory color. Of course I mixed the color in that large tub. Jennings, Will you state what part of the bar the tubs of paper in? Gruard. Well, near the door, the south door. Jennings. And was she during any during, of the portion of that time in the immediate vicinity of those tubs or not? Gruard. I think she was. Jennings. Did you paint the house? Gruard. We did. The next morning of the 10th, outside, dark drab. The trim was a darker drab. Jennings. Do you remember whether or not any tests were made from time to time? By you and her in regard to the appearance of the paint when you were mixing it? Gruard. Well, the paint was carried there on the afternoon of the 9th, and her father said that she was to select the color. And I better not go on with it until the color was determined. And she, not being present, it was delayed until the next morning. That evening she came to my house and said the color was not just what she wanted. Jennings. She came to your house? In consequence of what she said to you, an appointment was made for the next morning? Gruard, the next morning, early before the men came to go to work, that was about 6 o'clock in the morning. I mixed the colors then satisfactorily. Jennings, she was there at that time? Gruard, yes, sir. Jennings, you painted the steps and everything connected with the house, I presume? Gruard, yes, sir. Knowlton, this was during cross-examination. Where were the paints in the barn and the door in the stall? Gruard, well, probably partially. There was two tubs, one dark and one light color. Knowlton. Well, don't you remember whether they were in the stall or not? Ruard. Well, one color may have been, but one color was near the door. Knowlton. You did all the mixing? Ruard. Yes, sir. Knowlton. Who else besides you did it? Ruard. Well, I directed the mix. I directed the mixing of it. Knowlton. Well, either you or some of your men did all the mixing? Ruard. Yes, sir. Knowlton. Well, she looked on and saw it done. Reward, yes, sir. Jennings, on redirect. After it was mixed, did you take it out and try it on the house? Reward, yes, sir. On the corner of the house near the back steps. Jennings, 
in consultation with her. Gruard, yes, sir. Jennings, so as to show how it looked on the house. Gruard, yes, sir. Shortly after Mary Raven completed the sewing of Lizzie's Bedford dress, Lizzie may have accidentally brushed against the back steps railing on her way to the backyard one afternoon while the paint was still wet. The painters had gone for the day without warning the household of the hazard waiting outside the back entry door. Or perhaps they had. It had ruined the lower part of her skirt and beneath the ruffle. As she descended the steps, her skirt caught up in, the right, in her right hand. Good enough for mornings around the house for now. The cheap cotton was at least a cooler option than her fancier dresses. Later, it would be suitable for some safe scraps and burning. During the Superior Court trial of June 1893, Lizzie's attorney, Andrew Jennings, questioned Mary Raymond, the dressmaker, who was at the board residence for two weeks in May of 1892. Mr. Jennings, do you remember at that time you were there? They were painting the house, or did, or, or did paint the house? Raymond, they did paint the house at that time, yes, sir. Jennings, do you know anything about whether at that time there was a, any paint got upon the dress? Raymond, there was. Jennings, how soon after it was made did Miss Lizzie begin to wear it? Raymond, just as soon as it was finished. Jennings, and how soon after that, as you recollect, that she got paint on it? Raymond, I can't tell you that. I don't remember. Jennings, was it while you were there? Raymond, oh, yes, sir. Mrs. Raymond was there the first week of May and stayed three weeks. The painters began work on May 10th and were there three weeks, a little longer than the dressmaker. Jennings, where was the paint, if you recollect? Raymond, it was on the front of the dress and around the bottom of the dress, around the ruffle, on the underneath part of the hem. Chapter 5, All Around the Town. Double, uh, double tap that screen. If you like what you hear, please double tap that screen. Show me some love, you guys. The months of April and May of 1892 had been busy ones in the Borden Murders Countdown. In April, pigeons are beheaded, the barn is broken into, and something was taken from it. And Andrew finds a need to buy a new hatchet and put it in the safekeeping of his farm foreman. May wraps up with several occurrences. A blue Bedford cord dress is made only to become stained with paint immediately after, and the board and barn is broken into, again, during the time paints are being mixed there. Pigeons are once again beheaded and cruelly showcased on the family kitchen table. There it is. Flip back on me twice. And Uncle John Vinicum Morse returns for another visit, this time to ride with Andrew Borden over to the Swansea farm and talk about future plans. Attorney Knowlton, during the preliminary trial, August 25th to September 1st, 1892, did he say anything about his farm, about giving that away? John Morse. We were going over. That was something in May of this year. We were riding over by his place. We got to speaking about the old lady's home. You know, he says, I would give them the, some land here if I thought they would accept it. Something to that effect. Knowlton. Nothing about a will then? Morse. No, sir. Knowlton. About giving it to them? Morse. Yes, sir. That is all. John Morse's testimony came after much probing by Attorney Knowlton. It was obvious John did not want to talk about the farm or the plans for it. Knowlton. Did he, Andrew Borden, ever tell you about any bequests he had notion of making? Morse. I think he said something about making. He did not say how or anything like that. Knowlton. 
Whether he ever did say anything to you about any purpose? Morse. I think sometime he made a remark about a bequest. Knowlton. When was that? Morse. I think somewhere within a year. Knowlton. Where were you at the time? Morse. I think on South Main Street. Knowlton. What doing? Walking together? Morse. Just walking along. Knowlton. What was it he said? Morse. That is all he said. Knowlton. What? Morse. Something about some bequests that he would make. He didn't say what they were, or anything about it. Something about giving something away. Bequest to somebody he did not say who. Something about these bequests that he, he did not say anything more about. Nolton. What did he say? Morse. He did not know, but he might make some public bequests worse to that effect. Nolton. Won't you tell me what he said? Morse. He talked like he was going to make some public bequests just in that way. Knowlton, that was sometime within a year. Morris, yes, sir. Knowlton, can you fix the time any better than that? Morris, I could not. And the testimony above is John. And the testimony above is John is pushed to state what the bequests were. He suddenly switches to the words "public bequests" in an effort to distance the topic from a closer recipient. John's tap dance concerning Andrew's will and his contents. Was witnessed during early during was witnessed earlier during the coroner's inquest, five days after the murders. He is still vague as to when a certain as to when certain conversations took place. Nolton. Did he ever talk with you about a will, Morris? Yes, sir, he has. Nolton. When was the last time, Morris? Somewhere within a year. Nolton. Were you in the house, Morris? No, sir. I think we were outside at the time. Knowlton. What was the talk? Morris. He said he thought he should make some requests outside the charitable purposes. He did not say any more, either one way or another. Knowlton. Did he talk as though he was intending to make a will? Morris. I judged from that that he was intending to do so. I drew my conclusions that he had not, but was thinking of it. Knowlton. Did he mention the bequest outside the thought he should make? Morris. He did not. Knowlton. How came he to be speaking about it? Morris. Common conversation, I suppose. Same as about his land. Before he bought the birch land, I was down there with him. He says, let's go up to Main Street. We went up. He says, here is a piece of property. Don't say anything about it. I have a chance to buy. What is your opinion about it? I asked what it could be bought for. I don't know. He told me direct. But about. I says, I think it is a good property in the heart of the city. The city will be coming towards it all the time. I believe it would be a good investment. Several months afterwards, one Sunday, he says, John, I did as you told me. I says, what is that? I forgot all about it. I bought the Birchland. Nolton, I wish you would recall the conversation about the will as explicitly as you have this. Morris, that is all he said about a will. He thought of making some bequests out, you know, for charitable purposes. His farm over there... He was talking about the old lady's home. I don't know, but I, I would give them this if they would take it. Was that for the same talk? Morris, I don't think it was the same time. Milton, did he talk to you in any other time about a will? Morris, years ago, out west at my place one time. He said he had a will. Several years ago, he told me he had destroyed it. Milton, 
How long ago did he tell you he had destroyed it? Morris. Fifteen years ago. Knowlton. Did he tell you anything about the contents of the will? Morris. He did not. The timing here is interesting. When Lizzie was asked about Andrew's property during her inquest testimony, she mentions the Birchland, stating a short time ago he bought some real estate that belonged to a Mr. Birch. John says several months after the conversation about the Birch property with Andrew, Andrew tells him he did indeed purchase it. Andrew bought the Birchland May 22, 1892. The talk about the old lady's home happened in May when John and Andrew drove over to the Swansea farm. John can only manage to say the original Birchland conversation in other requests is within a year. John says Andrew told him several months after he mentioned thinking of buying it, that he had bought it. Was it several months earlier it was mentioned originally, or is it possible this elusive time was in April? A visit he has not alluded to. We first hear about the pigeons in April, during the first barn break-in. Was John there around the 1st of April? There's evasiveness concerning when his conversation occurred with Andrew about bequests and the birch tree land has something to do with not wanting to mention. Hang on a second. Was not wanting to mention. Yeah. <sighs> okay. I hate when it does this. Was not wanting to mention April in case he was asked if anything out of the ordinary happened while he was visiting Andrew. Would a barn break in and a stolen hash be subject to avoid? Did Lizzie overhear any other conversations concerning the Swansea farm and bequests? It is interesting that the two big discussions concerning Andrew's will and bequests happened on South Main Street and at the farm away from listening ears. The Birch Street purchase was not a small one. Andrew bought the area for $23,000. Wow. That's $400,000 in today's dollars. His plan was to erect a substantial brick building at the corner of Spring and South Main comparable to his large Andrew J. Borden building farther north on Main Street. He told the Fall River Daily Globe reporter, I could secure tenants readily for two floors, but it wouldn't be just a thing in my mind to leave the third floor for hall or dancing purposes. Second Street will eventually become an overflow business highway, highway, but it won't be in my time. I don't like to move off the street in my lifetime, and dances wouldn't be the thing that I want around, my, around me in my sleep. Parentheses. Andrew says he has no intention of moving off 2nd Street in his lifetime, something Lizzie and Emma contradict in later interviews. End parentheses. When John Morse is questioned by Attorney Knowlton at the inquest in the preliminary hearing, he confesses to only three dates leading up to the murders that he was with Andrew prior to leading up to the murders that he was with Andrew prior to his visit the day before. Abby and Andrew are killed. He says he is there May the end of June, and the middle of July. The murders occurred August 4th. John is suddenly with Andrew every month, talking over this strange request to the old lady's home. All right, guys, that's it. That's it till next week. I'm going to stop there. And I want to thank you all for coming, and I hope you're as interested in this book as I am to see, to see where it leads and all the details about Lizzie Borden that you probably haven't heard, right? So uh, hopefully you join me again next week, uh, 6 p.m. Pacific on Sunday. Uh, tomorrow we are going to have an interesting show. We're going to be talking about paranormal mysteries of the United, paranormal mysteries and other legends of the U.S. And that's going to be uh, the Western U.S. And that is going to be 6:30 p.m. Pacific 
tomorrow right here. Uh, as far as TikTok goes, of course, I can't, I don't have the capability of going live at that point, but you can join us at 6.30 p.m. at youtube.com forward slash at California Haunts Radio. That's 6.30 p.m. Pacific. So join us over there, and uh, we'll see you tomorrow, and have a great evening, TikTok. And now, coming back over here, for everybody that joined me tonight on Facebook, I really appreciate you joining me. Facebook, Twitter, Twitch, everywhere else you guys join me. I really appreciate it. I hope to see you tomorrow, 6.30 p.m. Pacific, for John Olson, and we're going to be talking about legendary mysteries of the Old West. So have a great evening, and I will see you guys tomorrow. Here we go. Cue it up, and we're done. They're incapable of staying with the next week. All right. See you guys later. Wow.